Welcome to a special edition of Smart Driving Cars, a webinar that took place on October 12th on the ABCs of Autonomous Vehicles, Technology, Economics, and Policy presented in its entirety. Smart Driving Cars is made possible by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to safe and high-quality mobility for all. From the Reason Foundation, the Brookings Institution, and Princeton Autonomous Vehicle Engineering, welcome to the ABCs of Autonomous Vehicles, Technology, Economics, and Policy. I'm Fred Fishkin, here to moderate. Autonomous vehicles have captured the public imagination in recent years with promises of improved safety, access, and productivity. The purpose here is to cut through some of the confusion and clutter and to promote better understanding of the technology, its real value and potential. And we truly have a world-class panel to do that. The role of the media here is crucial, as is the role of government. We appreciate all of you for joining us. It's a serious subject that deserves as much accurate information as you can provide. There is much good that can come out of this technology, life-changing potentially for millions, and conveying solid information is vital helping people to understand that the words self-driving don't mean the same as driverless, just one example. There will be an opportunity for Q&A following the presentations via chat for the most part. We'll first be hearing from Alan Kornhauser, Professor, Operations Research and Financial Engineering and Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University. He will be followed by Cliff Winston, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution, and then finally, Mark Scribner, Senior Transportation Policy Analyst at Reason Foundation. After that, we'll get to the Q&A and we hope you will participate. First, let's turn to Alan Kornhauser. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me share my screen here. Um, what I would like to do with you for a few minutes this afternoon is to really try to make succinct uh, what it is the technology might be able to deliver to us to really improve the world. So I've decided to title this to what extent will which incarnation of vehicle automation change what in the world. So Dealing with which incarnation of vehicle automation, NHTSA has decided to call these things according to levels, given certain number of names associated with those levels. I'd like to break this down into three groupings of these and walk you through each of those groupings to discuss with you exactly what the substance of each of them is and how they differ from each other in terms of what they are and what they are intended to do. So the first is what is called momentary driver assistance. What this is, is really it, uh, brought to, uh, most directly by this image. Here we have 
what I like to think are two drivers in a vehicle trying to negotiate a vehicle to go down an aisle. Yet behind this vehicle is this young lady. This is really the momentary driver assistance system. She is so concerned about the safety of these two individuals that sure, she'll let them do almost anything that they want. But the one thing that they won't do is run into the, the aisle and into the shelving. She is sitting there and standing there making sure that in fact, as long as things are okay, go do whatever you want. But as soon as you start getting yourself into a potential collision, I'm gonna take over and make sure that you're safe. So this is really a safe driving uh, incarnation of vehicle automation. It can be called advanced driver safety system because this is focused purely on safety. And the safety here is really, it's on all the time and it overrides drivers only in, to avoid getting into, getting into a crash situations. We've had a number of these systems on our vehicles for some time, analog brakes. As long as we're not using the brakes inappropriately, hey, they just work the way we want. Otherwise, the system takes over and doesn't allow you to lock your wheels. Same thing with electronic stability control. You can go around corners just fine. You go around too fast, all of a sudden the system takes over and makes sure that you don't lose your rear end. And maybe one of the most successful of, of these systems is reverse automated braking, uh, automated braking systems. So that if you back up and there happens to be a child behind your car, the car stops. And in fact, the implementations of these automated systems, especially this one in current vehicles that are available in the showroom is probably the one that, that works the best out of all these systems. And they are focused on safety and safety that focuses on crash avoidance, which is somewhat different than airbags and, 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 uh, and crush zones and so on in cars and seat belts, which focused on crash mitigation, keeping you from dying in, the, in, 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 in case of a, a crash. These focus on crash avoidance. And this has enormous implication on insurance because in fact, if there is no crash, then, uh, then there's no insurance that needs to be paid out. There no, there's no lawyer, there's no ambulance, there's no medical uh, payments that have to be made. And this is actually most valuable to those who most behave in the using of vehicles because it saves them from crashes. It should be mandated. mandated. They shouldn't be turn-offable as this woman should not ever uh, not pay attention and make sure that that the that the the cart safely goes down the aisle. This could be extended, extended this uh, speed governors, acceleration governors, uh, monitors breadth of, of of your of your ability to to um, uh, uh, properly uh, uh, control the vehicle. But in fact, this these kinds of automations are focused purely on safety. The second grouping of uh, driver assistance, digital driver assistance and conditional automation 
are what I would call advanced driver assistance systems. They really are focused and, and, and the kinds of systems that are out there, intelligent cruise control, lane centering, automated lane change, they enable the driver to withdraw from performing the driving function to become the monitor of the driving function. Uh, driver can take their hands off the pedals or their feet off the pedals, most importantly, or hands off the steering wheel. And they're engageable only in certified areas at certified times because these systems only work in certain places and in certain times. The driver remains responsible, the responsible entity for both the safety and the legal operation of the vehicle. So that there is no, it gets reverted to the system or something. The driver remains as the monitor and the responsible entity in dealing with ensuring that the, the system remains safe and operates legally. In other words, comes to stop at stop signs, uh, doesn't speed and so on. These things have turned out to be extremely desirable comfort and convenience features for the driver. And they are selling in the, in the showrooms today. The systems that are out there are being purchased and are extremely successful in providing this comfort and convenience, but the driver must, must, uh, must uh, continue to, uh, to realize that they are, they are responsible for monitoring the system and they are responsible for the safety and legal operation of the system. The third incarnation of vehicle automation is driverless, this high automation and full automation levels that NHTSA talks about. This system has no human driver, only passengers, if any, could be empty could be going around just going from A to B. To, I send it to Fred to go use, to give Fred a ride today. It has no steering pedal, no steering wheel, no pedals. Uh, vehicles will need to be licensed by uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles in states. Um, you know, they will have to be licensed just that like any vehicle is licensed that operates on public roadways today. The owners will need to designate the, the uh, a responsible entity for the safe and legal operation of the vehicle. So therefore, you know, it's not the vehicle itself. Someone, something, somebody is going to need to be designated to safely, uh, to be responsible for that safe operation and to be responsible that it, that it meets the, all the rules of the road, the, the speed limits and so on. Uh, for these vehicles to be out there. The high automation includes, uh, in, the, in this high automation piece, this includes an operational design domain where this vehicle can do this, these particular, take on the responsibility of the safe and legal operation of the vehicle. Unfortunately, the, uh, th these operational uh, design designation, uh, designations will be limited in the beginning because it will not be everywhere. The everywhere sort of comes into the full automation. Uh, these limitations on where such things uh, can operate will make personal ownership unattractive. 
I believe, and will be challenging for things like ride hailing or fleet operations because the ride hailing fleet operation is so diffuse in time and space. The implication is that one needs to be able to service any demand from any origin to any destination in a particular area, not just those contained within an operational uh, design designation. Full automation, and in other words, the removal of any operational design designation uh, by one, it can go anywhere, is just simply very hard. Uh, very hard is just very hard and nobody's anywhere near being able to do this at this particular point in time. So what this thing, what this, the driverless pieces are really broken into two classes of, of, of potential market opportunities. One is in which is a fleet model that could provide substantial equity and economic development opportunity in both the movement of people and the movement of goods on the one hand, but in only designated operational design domains, which means in space and time limited, but at least a way to get started in place where this can be done. The full automation could lead to us personally owning all of these vehicles and having them so that we can just go anywhere and enjoy ourselves. My personal view on this is this consumer model for full automation is extremely elitist and just will allow the rich to get richer and I'm not interested. So basically that's a rundown of the, of the technology as to what it can do in terms of safety in terms of providing comfort and convenience where the, the, uh, the owner and the driver of the car remains in the vehicle and, and remains, remains um, uh, cognizant and, and, and fully responsible for what's going on down to the full automation where we're being given rides and enjoying and getting the benefit of the mobility. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. We'll get you to stop your screen share now. There we go. Thank you. And a reminder that we're going to have Q&A. Please use the Q&A function for that. I, I think you can start adding questions in as we go along, and we'll get to them when we're completed with the presentations. Next, a focus on the economics with Cliff Winston from the Brookings Institution. Cliff? Great. Thank you. And you'll put up my slides, right? Absolutely. Coming right up. Great. The, uh, okay, perfect. Get to the right mode here for you. Good. All right. Thank you. So let me uh, briefly explain the title uh, with then uh, you know, mixed in a little background on me. I'm calling this autonomous vehicles. The road to economic growth is paved with resistance. I'm saying this because I said my background is an economist and I started studying economics during the 1970s at a time that was very exciting for transportation. I was at Berkeley and BART was being built and there was a lot of excitement, anticipation of suburban rail being very helpful for transportation. And at the same time, there was also growing interest in economics and quantifying the benefits of efficient pricing um, on congested highways like the Bay Bridge and these kinds of things 
And so we really thought, you know, this is a good movement for economics and both analysis and improvements in the system. And we recommended many things in terms of efficient policy and also then efficient investments. And decades afterwards, you know, we look and just things just never were implemented and the system itself tended to be quite inefficient. And where I see autonomous vehicles now is coming along to really correcting government failures that we've had for decades in, in trying to improve the system. So let me go over in the next slide with just uh, uh, a sense, the bigger picture of what transportation is about. Now, first, what we are dealing with here is the cost of distance. If we all live next to, you know, if we get to everybody in, in, in immediate time, uh, no weight, no anything, obviously it'd be a very different world and we wouldn't have to worry about the transportation system. But this is not the way the world works. We have a huge cost of distance, including out-of-pocket costs, the value of service or travel time, the reliability of travel time, and safety. So humankind has attempted to reduce these costs since the Stone Age. Think about it. When you lived in your cave, right, you had no transportation, and you lost all the benefits of a modern economy. You had to work where your cave was, so you couldn't match your skills with the labor market, right? Uh, you did not have competition, so you had monopolies to get all your goods. You had to have your vacation near your cave, so on and so forth. So if you think of all the benefits of a modern economy, scale economies, product diversity, competition, none of that existed until we had transportation. That basically opens up the growth of an economy. And this is consistent with the fact that the, both the public and private just spend a huge amount of money on transportation. Yet, my concern is the social costs continue to grow. So in this context, autonomous vehicles are really the game changer. They can get the benefits that we've been trying to get since we've been in caves, reduce the costs of transportation and other costs. But my frustration, or let's say disappointment, is I do not see that much excitement about this. Let me even start from my own profession. Economists have really not been writing much about this. And I see critics from other fields, and I rarely see even the media sharing the excitement. Now I understand, and I'll get to these, there are concerns but overall, we are talking about a big ticket item that I think given what's at stake, there should be more sort of positive thinking and, and constructive thinking about where we should go. Okay, next. So what I'll do now in just a few more minutes then is just run down all the benefits and they really are impressive. Okay, one, the conventional benefits. You know, first, you're gonna reduce vehicle expenditures. People will share their vehicles. So you no longer have to incur the capital costs of ownership and very small insurance costs. The suppliers will obviously have to be the ones who are insuring their vehicles. They'll pass on some of that, but it won't be like things are now with insurance. As Alan talked about, faster travel times, improvements in the reliability of travel times. Now people will quickly say yes, but there'll be more AVs on the road. There'll be more congestion and so on and so forth. Bear in mind that a third of congestion and delays come from incident delays, accidents, as vehicles or the drivers, if you will, rubberneck and things slow down. Autonomous vehicles, one, they probably won't be getting an accident, but even if they do, 
they won't be rubbernecking. So you'll get that immediate benefit in terms of improvements in travel times. Third, virtual elimination of accidents and the cost of fatalities, injuries, and vehicle damage. And something that's overlooked, AVs in the long run are going to be combined with electric vehicles. So you're going to get the huge benefit of reduced emissions. Again, this is sort of the thing that I've been flummoxed about. There is a lot of interest and excitement about electric vehicles, and the administration has been encouraging adoption of them. But why not autonomous vehicles? You're going to get all these benefits and more. And you put this all together. In our book, we do this and estimate that GDP from adoption, 50% of AVs uh, in the traffic mix would be a 1% increase, which is a big ticket item for a micro policy. And it's probably a conservative estimate. Next. Now, it's not over. There's more, as the commercial says. Wait, there's more. Additional benefits, improvements in land use freeing up parking spaces at urban centers and eliminate garages and residence. Instead of having a garage, you can use that for other, other things in your house, another bedroom or whatever. Wasteful minimum parking requirements. People then will say, yes, but you're gonna have sprawl. True, most likely, but again, this reflects inefficient policy. You wanna reduce sprawl, put in congestion pricing and give disincentives for these longer commutes. Elimination of motivation for confrontations with police following traffic stops. This is never mentioned. Why would police have an incentive to stop autonomous vehicles? That would be breaking the law. So you know, this social problem obviously will be significantly reduced. In a world of, of uh, uh, diseases, maintaining social distancing while facilitating economic activity, uh, will be important. I understand we're over COVID, but you know there'll be a new variant and we're gonna have to worry about this issue again. And taxpayers will benefit by eliminating subsidies for inefficient modes that whose day will end. And we will now have basically our own private transit transportation systems. Next. And there's still more. Benefiting consumers on the freight side by competition and product variety with autonomous trucking, that will be huge reductions in inventory and logistics costs. All this then reducing the cost, improving the quality of goods, improving mobility for poor, elderly, infirm people. You know, we spend money on this, but we get very little in terms of social returns. Now, certainly labor, there'll be mixed effects because jobs on the driver's seat will basically be eliminated. But consider the positive things. There'll be more activities to actually service and operate autonomous operations. But then overall, if you're increasing the efficiency of an economy, then you're going to increase overall output, which in turn will spur employment. So on net, you're probably going to get an increase in employment because of AVs. And as we learn for other innovations, there are other unforeseen benefits. Final slide. So taking stock, AVs really represent one of the most important innovations in decades, huge potential benefits, and an example, textbook example, of markets helping government. That's what they are doing. They are solving problems that government should have been solving for decades and have got made very little progress. AVs will make much more progress. Concluding points, obstacle is not technology. 
especially in a global competitive environment. We'll probably talk about this more in detail. But bear in mind, this is not just the US that's involved with this. This is global competition. And there's every reason to believe that someone will succeed. It's unfortunate that people are saying we're getting AVs tomorrow and the press jumps all over them on this. And that's obviously a mistake. But looking in the long run, this technology, I think, will be successful. The real problem, which is, I think, where we need more attention, is the role of government policy. Expediting testing, adoption, aligning the infrastructure with uh, the technology of AVs, and aligning efficient infrastructure policy is what's going to be essential. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Cliff. Uh, we'll be opening up to questions in just a few minutes. But first, the issue of policymaking. And for that, we turn to Reason Foundation's Mark Scribner. Thank you, Fred and Cliff and Alan. Uh, let me get my slides up here. Those coming through? Great. So um, Cliff uh, teed this up, um, the role of policy in, uh, in AV deployment. Um, so I'm gonna talk about uh, just an overview, I'm gonna give an overview of both the federal uh, auto safety regulatory framework and how AVs may fit into that, because I don't think that framework is going anywhere anytime soon. Um, so at least for the time being, we're going to uh, be working within the existing system. Um, I'll touch on uh, the state and local government roles uh, in AV regulation. Um, right now, there's, there's some overlap uh, that will probably go away, uh, but they all kind of fit together uh, in, the, in the automotive regulatory safety uh, ecosystem. Um, and then, uh, while I'm not going to offer much in terms of crystal ball prognostications, uh, I will try to uh, uh, say what I think are the, the big issues uh, coming down the pike that are uh, going to concern policymakers uh, and those who uh, operate in the AV policy space. Um, so first, some basics on the, the, the federal auto uh, safety regulatory framework. Um, in the U.S., the federal government has primary authority over vehicle safety and performance regulation, um, and that's carried out by uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And then for commercial uh, motor vehicles, uh, the Federal Motor Vehicle or Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. Uh, and I think it's it's best to look at this rather than uh, you know uh, regulating behavior on the roads. The primary function of the feds. In, uh, in regulating auto safety is as a technology regulator of the vehicle and its systems uh, themselves. Um, uh, this is underpinned, this whole framework uh, is underpinned by the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act of 1966 that set up uh, our modern uh, vehicle uh, safety regulatory regime. Um, key point there is that uh, unlike a lot of peer countries outside of North America, uh, in the U.S., uh, we rely on manufacturer self-certification to federal motor vehicle safety standards, which FMVSS, that's what we call auto safety regulations in the U.S. 
Um, so it isn't the government uh, uh, doing uh, type approval or a form of pre-market approval that is common in, in Europe and Asia, um, uh, where they pull a production vehicle off the line and test it before it goes and enters commerce. Um, here it is, it is the federal government uh, promulgates a federal motor vehicle safety standard and then a manufacturer or importer of the vehicle uh, uh, complies through self-certification saying that they have met those requirements. Another important law, uh, particularly for emerging vehicle technologies, this is the National Technology Transfer and Advancement Act. And in particular, the provisions that deal with the regulatory incorporation of voluntary consensus standards, the, the technical standards to, uh, developed by, by industry, academia, and, and third-party bodies, such as the Society of Automotive Engineers. Um, if you want more detail on how federal regulatory agencies are supposed to incorporate those standards, the Office of Management and Budget um, put out a, a circular A119 uh, that describes in detail uh, how agencies should approach um, this question of incorporating technical standards in federal regulation. Um, as it stands today, we have 73 federal motor vehicle safety standards, so auto, the auto regulations, and those incorporate 255 voluntary consensus technical standards. And the I think it's worth noting, um, particularly as we're talking about emerging technologies, the median standard publication year uh, of those incorporated standards in FMVSS is currently 1980. Um, so it's going to be a challenge uh, to update all our regulations with contemporary, or con contemporary standards. Uh, and as more standards come out, particularly as they re uh, relate to automated driving systems for the, the higher levels of automation uh, that Alan discussed, um, that is going to be a, a challenge um, and it's going to take time. Um, also worth pointing out before we conclude in this sort of the background on federal uh, federal auto safety regulation is that matters that aren't explicitly covered by federal motor vehicle safety standards so a feature um or or, or some aspect um they're not prohibited unless they present a safety hazard which is why uh as long as a developer of an automated driving system equipped vehicle complies with the existing standards and their new um, new system does not present a safety hazard. There's no it's 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 entirely legal uh, to enter interstate uh, uh, commerce. Um, so that's an important point uh, often missed in this uh, discussion. So. Going forward, how might automated driving systems fit into this, uh, this general framework? Well, um, I think we have an early indication with the, the single uh, ADS specific rule that's been promulgated at the federal level. And that happened earlier this year with the, uh, the final rule on occupant protection for vehicles with automated driving systems. Um, and it was interesting looking at the kind of guiding philosophy in the, uh, that was uh, behind the development of this rule. It was drafted to minimize changes to federal motor vehicle safety standards while preserving those underlying safety goals. Uh, a lot of folks think that that is the, the general model uh, for proceeding with these new technologies, not necessarily trying to reinvent the wheel with federal auto safety regulation, at least initially, but trying to 
make those small tweaks in order to accommodate uh, these new technologies so that they can be certified uh, and compliant with, with uh, federal auto safety regulations. Um, Notably, this rule cleared the way for self-certification of occupantless cargo vehicles because this rule was uh, uh, much of it was focused on uh, ADS equipped vehicles with, with unconventional designs. Um, so Neuro is one of the developers uh, working on a vehicle like that. Um, and this is this uh, certainly um, aids uh, their path to compliance. Um, this is a this is an important first step, but there is a lot of work to done that, uh, to be done that's going to take a lot of time. Uh, so here is where we are with federal uh, active automated driving system rulemaking projects. I'm not going to go through all of those, but I think some some key takeaways are that uh, that the comment periods have been uh, closed on on some foundational. Uh, ADS rulemaking projects for some time now, uh, and they're still being analyzed. Um, this suggests that substantive federal uh, uh, automated vehicle regulation is not going to occur in the near term. Um, I think the delay uh, is in part due to the lack of published voluntary consensus standards that may be ripe for regulatory incorporation. Um, uh, but uh, there also seems to be generally uh, uh, at least uh, so far, this administration uh, has uh, uh, perhaps less enthusiasm for automated driving systems than the previous two administrations. Um, but I do think the, the lack of published technical standards uh, that could be incorporated in regulation is a uh, hurdle, uh, and it's one that's going to remain with us for some time. Um, importantly, where federal regulators are silent, um, states may act instead. Um, now we get to the state and locals. Um, states and locals have primary authority over vehicle operations and infrastructure management. They own the roads, they manage the roads, uh, they, they license drivers, they register vehicles, all of that kinds of thing that goes in with the vehicles actually out there in the real world. Um, state and local governments are going to be filling this, this policy vacuum uh, created by federal inaction, and we can see this playing out right now. Uh, over the last six years, 47 states have seen 583 AV bills introduced. 42 states have seen 128 AV bills enacted. These covered a wide range of topics and brought a, a bunch of different approaches to the table, uh, but uh, the testing and operations permitting uh, requirements, as we see most notably in California, have the most significant impact because they're directly regulating the operation of these ADS-equipped vehicles. Um, uh, local governments uh, have largely focused on uh, uh, things like uh, transit system and ride hail integration, uh, fleet and curve management, things that they have often focused on with conventional vehicles. Um, but locals, and this is, I think, important, local governments may be constrained by state preemption going forward. Uh, a number of states have preempted the ability of, of local governments, their local governments, to regulate aspects of automated driving systems. Um, I think most notably is Oklahoma, where the, the state enacted a law preempting localities from regulating ADS-equipped vehicles. Uh, actually, it was broader than that. It was all levels of automation. Um, but then did not do anything at the state level in terms of creating a statewide framework. Uh, so that was just a, 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 a preemption bill. 
Um, so what's next? Um, like I said, I can't predict the future. Uh, it's, it's very uncertain. Uh, but I do think that federal agency action is going to lag uh, state legislative and regular, regulatory activity in the coming years. Uh, this may change as more of those consensus standards are published and evaluated and potentially determined to be right for regulatory incorporation. But even then, it's going to take a while once a federal rulemaking is initiated for that final rule, that final fo uh, federal motor vehicle safety standard to be published several years. Um, uh, soup to nuts there. So some time, uh, a lot of waiting ahead. The wild card, though, is Congress. Uh, and the big question is, will we see comprehensive national uh, automated vehicle legislation in the next 118th Congress? Well, this, this past Congress missed a, a, a good opportunity to include some AB provisions uh, in the surface transportation reauthorization that was included in the, in the big infrastructure law. Um, but the, the new uh, autonomous vehicle uh, caucus is expected to push for a bill in the new uh, in new Congress, um, but whether that is a standalone bill like we saw in the past Congresses with the self-drive and AV start acts, or if they're going to try to attract uh, attach some of those provisions to must pass spending legislation or something like that, a, a larger vehicle, a legislative vehicle, uh, it remains to be seen. What would the focus of this bill be on? In recent years, there's been talk of a skinny focus. So rather than trying to uh, enact legislation that tries to address every uh, conceivable uh, automated vehicle issue, uh, you would focus on some, uh, some smaller things, things we know more, uh, more about and feel more confident in, in, in uh, suggesting policy change. So uh, one, particularly for light duty vehicles, uh, uh, equipped with automated driving systems would be raising the annual federal motor vehicle safety standard exemption caps. And that's so uh, until we have these new regulations in place, uh, there is a, a bit of a, a, a safety valve there uh, to allow uh, the, these technologies to scale at a pace that right now is, is essentially prohibited because the, the annual cap is, is 2,500 vehicles per year. Um, we may see rulemaking deadlines, but uh, Congress loves to uh, to enact rulemaking deadlines and agencies uh, love to blow past those rulemaking deadlines. So it's unclear what that would do, but there was a lot of discussion on putting specific uh, deadlines uh, in previous discussions of, of federal uh, automated vehicle legislation. Clarification of state and local authorities. This had been very controversial um, several years ago. It seems that a consensus between uh, state regulators and the Congress uh, has been forged. Uh, so that may be uh, smoother sailing. It may just be uh, uh, explicitly preserving conventional authorities and, and delineating those authorities more clearly than, than they currently are, especially in this context. Um, but interest group, uh, you know, uh, ornaments, uh, you know, that's, I think, the big question. There's a lot of asks out there from, from various interests, and they range from more federal advisory committees uh, to special carve-outs uh, to protect their uh, particular industry. Um, a skinny focus bill would probably discard a lot of that, but, uh, you know, that is where you're probably going to see a lot of lobbying focus on, is on those, uh, those the perhaps extraneous items, um, less impactful items. Um, 
I think finally, though, one thing that hasn't been discussed much but may be discussed more is, is there a role for more uh, coordination and closer monitoring to ongoing automated vehicle testing activities, which have been taking place at the state and local level, largely on an ad hoc basis, initiated by the manufacturer, some state oversight, some local uh, buy-in, local government buy-in. But by and large, it's, a, it's, it's been an uncoordinated uh, uh, experiment uh, uh, taking place uh, around the country. Uh, they could build, perhaps build on NHTSA's AV test initiative that was established by the, uh, the, the previous administration uh, that uh, provides insight into those activities, those testing activities taking place around the country. Um, but it's unclear if there's going to be something like a national testing program or what a national testing program would do uh, to add value uh, over the, the, the current uh, decentralized uh, testing operations. Um, and then I'll conclude here. Um, the state focus is trending towards, I think, very practical topics. I think that's very good. Um, and that includes um, uh, vehicle equipment code updates. Um, you know, there are, just like there are uh, potential conflicts in the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, so too are there conflicts in the state equipment codes uh, that can vary state to state. Um, ride hailing integration, uh, explicitly allowing uh, automated driving system equipped vehicles to participate in the state's ride hailing, existing state uh, uh, regulatory framework for ride hailing. Uh, first responder interactions have been uh, uh, a very uh, important topic in a lot of localities uh, in recent years. Uh, what to do when a state trooper or uh, EMS crew shows up on a, uh, a vehicle, an ADS equipped vehicle pulled over on the side of the road. Um, and then uh, some policy to support specific early business models, such as the, the transfer hub AV trucking model, where uh, the trucks would be automated on uh, relatively low conflict, limited access highways, but then uh, for the last mile, uh, human drivers uh, take over uh, to bring it to the, the final destination. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Fred. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mark. Uh, Appreciate it. A great presentation from, from all three of you. We have the balance of the hour for Q&A, uh, and you will be using the Q&A function for that, those of you in the audience. So please jump in. We have uh, some questions already uh, available. Uh, Rush Shields from the LA Times. Uh, maybe we're going to try to enable your microphone. Can we try to bring Russ on? Russ, are you able to join us? If not, we can read the questions. Okay, Russ, we, if you unmute, you'll be, you'll be able to ask a question. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask his first one. <laughs> then uh, he asks of Alan. Okay. Why now, do you now, it, now, I think it finally got okay, me. Okay, Russ, go ahead. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm not with LA Times. Okay, uh, sorry. That's another Russ. Um, I'm just an industry troublemaker. Right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so Elaine and, and some of the others um, talked about um, automated driving systems, particularly for passenger vehicles, and talked about the nonsense of robo-taxis or what have you, specialized vehicles, but ignored the 
evolution of the regular vehicles that you and I are talking about buying um, that will over the next five to 10 years start having ADS capabilities. And I, for one, um, often driving Chicago to Detroit, uh, give me something that will do full automated driving in my regular vehicle, I buy a new one, um, that will on even the just the expressways will do like 240 of my 250 miles of driving. Why is that option ignored in the list of, of things? Elaine went from driver assistance system jumping directly to the specialized vehicles where I think there is a, a real value um, that um, even people who commute on an expressway um, every day for whatever, half an hour um, each way, will find a way to, to see that uh, an automated driving system in their next vehicle when it's available with an ODD. It's not gonna have a perfect o ODD. It may not work on uh, nasty weather. Uh, it, it may not cover every driving location, but if it hits um, a significant proportion of my driving, and I think we know the statistics that the majority of miles driven are on expressways, um, I think there's real value there, but I, I didn't hear that type of vehicle covered in the discussion again. Thank you. Fred, uh, excuse me, or, or Russ, uh, um, if I'm, I may have misspoken, I certainly, uh, that is included um, in, in the, in the um, um, uh, driver assistance systems. Um, I, I, I just think that those things are, pr are more properly termed as driver assistance, as you described, they, they're assisting you in the driving. Uh, the key on this is that who is responsible for the safe operation and the legal operation of the vehicle? The vehicle so, manufacturers so, so, who are so, going to offer those systems, like Mercedes already is, will take responsibility, and I will be able to do my email and not pay attention. So, Unequivocally, I know we've had, you yeah. don't seem to believe this, No, but I, I know I, I, the vehicle I, manufacturers <laughs> for when it is running as an ADS, will be liable, will take the liability. I think that's, that's agreed to by every major vehicle manufacturer I know. I think that's fantastic, Russ. And, 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 and if they, if they do, uh, geez, and, and I can afford one, I, I will definitely also buy one. I think what the vehicle manufacturer is also going to have to be responsible for there, or somebody has to pick up the responsibility as, as what about the legal operation of the vehicle? So not only the, the operation of that vehicle in its operational design domain that they put out there, but also, you know, whatever the speed limit issues are or the stop sign issues are or, or all of those various things. And my goodness, if Mercedes is willing to, to do that for me, uh, great. Now, if Mercedes then says, my goodness, I have to, I'm going to adhere to the 65 mile an hour speed limit, then am I going to be able to jiggle that sucker and take it up to 85? And, and if I, if I don't, then am I going to be a happy camper? I don't know. I mean, they, these are really difficult issues and, and, and yes, Mark. Yeah. And I think there's between 
shared fleets and and outright ownership of of automated driving system equipped vehicles. I think there's there's a, a third option, and that's that's lease. Um, and the advantages that leases would would potentially offer here for for manufacturers uh, is they would help them uh, have better control over the maintenance of that vehicle because these these automated driving system equipped vehicles are going to be generating collecting so much data um, that heightens the the their foreseeability uh, and uh, exposes them to liability if anything goes wrong. So the idea of you know these things go off the dealer lot and then they're just going to let them be. Um, that's probably, you know, that they're probably not going to be comfortable with that, may not be comfortable with that. But leasing, where they can, in contract, prescribe strict maintenance terms and do that kind of marketing uh, throughout the term of the lease, that may allow those kind of personal automated vehicles uh, while minimizing the liability exposure of manufacturers. We have another question. Uh, uh, we want to turn to Steve Prescott, if we can get you to unmute, Steve. Thank you, Fred. Hey, Alan, good to see you again. So my question is kind of the inverse of the previous question. Alan, one of the things I've heard you talk about is mobility, that in a sense, the beneficiaries of autonomous vehicles can fall into two categories. There are people who already own vehicles today who are just looking for the next generation vehicle. Um, and then there are people who don't own cars, don't own vehicles today, the homebound, the elderly, the disabled. And to them, it's truly potentially life-changing by giving them the ability to get out of the house. And so my question is, from a policy perspective, what can we do to help address that second use case? Well, I think, uh, you know, practically, that's even an easier case to deal with than the, than the personal case, because because then you're going to have a responsible entity. I don't consider myself a very responsible consumer, so but maybe other consumers are responsible, but certainly a, a corporate entity that is making sure that these things uh, are maintained and so on and do stay within the operational design domains and do remain uh, within the, the, all the legal operation and are then managed to then provide the mobility to, to the groups that you mentioned including the poor, uh, which is sort of the big group, that's almost the easy play here. <laughs> Because then you can def you can better somewhat define uh, where they want to come from and go to the operational design domains are achievable and in fact I think almost achievable today with the technology that's out there working the problem backwards how good is it now let's see where this is good enough to be able to remove a driver and let's put that service out there today and that's is available today. So Alan, for those available today. So Alan, for those people, do you envision it as kind of a pay-per-use model as opposed to an ownership model? Well, of course it's pay-per-use. Somebody has to pay. Somebody will have to pay, and of course can be paid, but it could be transit stamps. I mean, you know, you know, we 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 have food stamps. Uh, doesn't tell us which grocery store to go to. We can go to a grocery store here. So, if in fact there is a subsidy that society would like to bring to that to do that, but if you're not be able to do that without having to incur the labor cost of doing this, it's you know, it's thirty-five cents a person mile. 
you know, it's absolutely very, very inexpensive. And in the operational design domains, if we can make them 24, 7, 350 days a year, as opposed to maybe not 365.25, my goodness, the, the amount of, of, of goodness that you provide to society, as Cliff uh, was, was mentioning, is just enormous. And, and you actually don't even have to travel far. They, they, these folks want to be able to get around their community. And, and that, to me, is the, that's the low-hanging fruit that exists now that can be done now. Brad, can I make a point? Sure. All right, think of the incentives from the point of view of the autonomous vehicle industry or the, the, the current uh, automotive industry. Right now, when they sell a car, they make money per unit. They don't make money once you buy the car, except if you repair it, all right? What the autonomous vehicle offers the whole industry, including technology firms, is to make it every time, make money every time you use it. It'll be on a per mile basis. So the industry has a huge incentive to move to a shared mile a shared mile, shared model, where they could make money every time you use it. Now the question is, what about on the consumer side? Well, the consumers have huge incentive because they don't have then to incur the capital costs and insurance costs. So it's hard to imagine, again, and I'm thinking in the long run, that we won't have an equilibrium where it's a shared model with both consumers and the industry better off. That's, I think, where, where we're going to be going. Terrific. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, we're going to try to get to as many as we can. We only have about eight minutes left, so we'll try to be very concise. We have a question from David Hunt. David, can you uh, join in? Sure. Hello. Hi, Alan. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, so I was just wondering what impact autonomous vehicles are going to have on roadway congestion. So on one hand, I can see that it's going to greatly increase the vehicle miles traveled as cars reposition to pick up riders. But on the other hand, if you're running autonomous vehicles with tight headways, uniform speeds, you're gonna have much greater throughput on interstates and roadways. So I'm torn as to which way it's ultimately gonna end up. Will we have to add more lanes for autonomous vehicles? One would like to be able to get to a shared ride opportunity. And as everybody knows, I always use the elevator as my analogy. And an elevator operates in, in, high, in, in high rises. And the only way it operates efficiently in high rises is under peak demands, people share it. Okay. And therefore, you know, it doesn't deal with what, what one has is an increased person miles traveled, not necessarily an increased vehicle miles traveled. And when the demand is greatest, that's when you have the greatest opportunity to share rides. Now, I know that we've gotten used to riding in our own cars and so on and so forth. But certainly every time we go into a big building, we don't hesitate to share a ride with, with uh, somebody in an elevator as opposed to taking the steps. And as Cliff pointed out, these systems under a shared ride, shared use, oh my goodness, the vehicle productivities. I mean, we, we look at vehicles having productivity of being able to do, uh, you know, 100 to 100 person trips a day uh, to 100 to 150 person trips a day. If you take that and you take the capital costs and you divide it out, it's, you know, capital costs are essentially zero for those trips. So there are enormous opportunities for ride sharing. 
how you actually implement it, whether you do it with pricing, encouragement, public um, consciousness, uh, environmental sustainability, and all the other good reasons to do those things. And and it turns out that, that if you're going from A to B at a certain time, the other person that's going from A to B at that time is probably a lot like you not completely different than you. And you might even, you know, strike up a conversation, heaven forbid. Fred, can I push on this one? All right, think, think in terms of the basic technology and economics, right? Congestion is caused when the volume capacity ratio is reached a limit, too much volume for the available capacity. How do you reduce the volume? Let's do that. Well, you spread the volume over the time of day. All right. Now, there'll be one thing that can do that independent of policy, and that's because the autonomous vehicle can be used for so many different activities. The standard, let's go to, to work during the peak time, will probably disappear as people spread out their travel times, go earlier, later, eat their breakfast, whatever. So you're starting to spread out the peak volume. Go to capacity. Obviously, autonomous vehicles are effectively increased capacity. Vehicles can travel closer together. The need for the breakdown laid is probably questionable. We could expand capacity there. We probably could even increase the number of lanes on a given road because right now, the actual widths of the lane are very wide in anticipation of fast free flow traffic, which we don't have. So that was a huge design mistake. We can make narrower lanes that'll still be safe. So there can be improvements on the capacity side, but the punchline is congestion pricing. That's what's gonna do it. And in autonomous vehicles, there's gonna actually be more acceptability of that. You're not gonna own the vehicle. When you use one, you're gonna have a menu of service and pricing and you can think of this just like an Uber. It'll be a per mile charge. If you don't wanna pay it, you can take a different route. But the chances of improvements in travel flows and congestion for these many reasons are gonna be great with autonomous vehicles, even if there's an increase in VMT. Thank you, Cliff. Uh, we have uh, Dick Mudge joining us with a comment or question, Dick. Hi, um, being, being a card-carrying economist, um, I very much like what Cliff Winston had to say. I think he's right. I think it's important to get out there to talk about the broad economic and social benefits of, of AVs. Uh, a key question is, how do we get to the critical mass? What critical mass do we have to have to make you get these benefits? Cliff mentioned 50%. If that's the number, we'll never get there. Uh, I'd be curious, you know, uh, if you have thoughts about uh, how that might vary by market. Um, and and the, the other question I had, do you also uh, said the government uh, is, is a potential problem, uh, but then you said the government should do more testing, which struck me as odd. But... Okay, let me, let me clar clarify that. Um, Government has responsibility for testing. I assure you, uh, I would love to get government completely out of the way of most of this, but uh, they have responsibilities here. You cannot introduce non-autonomous vehicles. Look at how, how the things work now. 
if you want a non-autonomous vehicle on the road, you can't just put it out there, right? There is a regulatory process, either through NHTSA or Congress, what have you, that's got to that's be in place. That is the problem with legislation now that, that Mark could go into more detail about. We haven't really gotten the, the uh, guideways, if you will, for how autonomous vehicles can legally be put on the road. This is what Musk is challenging. So whether I like it or not, at this point, the federal government's gonna be involved in testing and in adoption of AVs. But again, like all things with technology, the government will just listen to what the industry tells them. They're not gonna know anything anymore, that's for sure. But they still have to be involved with that. Now, back on your first question, it's obviously difficult to predict you know, what, the, what the penetration rate was. My, my point on 50%, was just saying that the benefits that I've been estimating had made that assumption. You know, we assume a lower penetration rate, lower benefits. But I think the point is this, you've seen work that shows that even modest adoption of AVs can improve the traffic flow, right? There's sort of engineering simulation work out there that shows that kind of thing. So gradually we can see improvements in that way. I don't know when the threshold will hit, but certainly this is going to be something as once we got moving and people see the benefits from it, we will certainly start getting more momentum for it. But again, be patient. I think the biggest problem that I have with people is that this is an innovation. It takes time. You know, in my book, I'm saying we're looking at 20 to 30 years from this. I mean, the fact that Musk is trying to tell people we're getting it tomorrow, you should not listen to him. This is what set back so much of the public discussion. All right, just be patient, allow the innovation and technology uh, to move and, and we'll get there. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, let's turn to Michael Senna, who's on the line as well from Sweden. Hi, Michael. Hi, Fred. I, uh, I, I enjoyed all the presentations. I think every, everyone has, has hit on a, a very important point, but I'd like to go back to what, to what Russ, Russ Shields said. Um, we just took ownership of a new car. It's a hybrid. It's not an electric. It's not a, a, a no cables hybrid, but it's a brand new Toyota RAV4. And one of the things that, that uh, the uh, salesperson said to my wife, because her car said, you have the possibility of driving on the highway and setting it so that it drives itself. You have to keep your hands close to the, to the steering wheel, but the, the car will drive itself. And the fact is that most of the cars that are being delivered today have the capabilities that have been developing over the last 20, 30 years to be able to do many of the things that cars that are, are being developed in this parallel universe by companies that are specializing in self-driving cars or so-called autonomous cars. So we have the capability today of doing many of these functions they're safe. Most of these cars are based on, on regulations and, and standards that are being, are being set by the UN, UNECE. And, and we have this other group of people who seem to, to be ignoring this whole other group of the, the traditional car companies who have been developing advanced driver assistance systems, as I said, for the last 25 or, or 30 years. And I, I really think it's time for those of us, most of, of those of us who are sitting here now talking and listening 
to really try to bring this all together, to put it into one place rather than having these two parallel and, and also you know, very expensive developments that are going on outside of the, of the, of the, of the uh, principal advanced driver assistance systems. So I'm gonna put my vote in here for saying we should, we should really start talking about how we get advanced driver assistance systems to be used more safely and at the same time, look at self-driving cars as solving a problem, which it can solve. As Alan said, we can solve a problem today of getting mobility for people who can't afford to have their own car or to have, to have taxis to get them to where they need to go. Focus on very limited areas where the cars can do what they need to do without the cost of a, of a human driver. So that's a, that's a plug. You're going to find this more likely to happen with trucking before it happens with cars. I, Cliff, I don't, I don't, I, trucking is a third group. I work in the trucking area as well. I think it's a very good area where we're trucking applications, but we're talking about the 99% of the, of the vehicles that are being used for personal transport, not the small percentage that are used for trucking. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter whether it can be used for trucking in mines or, or, or for, for driving around in, 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 in closed areas. I'm really talking about people being able to use cars for mobility. I understand exactly what you're saying. Yep. The point I want to make is, is that the advantage of trucking has been an organized interest. They have an incentive to get this done. They're already working, as you may know, with the states to try to get trucking corridors and to actually show how these things work and get attention to them in a safer environment because it's just gonna be on highways, not city streets. My point is, is that to get the kind of movement you're talking about, you need incentives, right? At this point, there is no one representing consumers to try to advocate for the attention of what AVs can do. Now, the government could do that. They're certainly doing it for electric vehicles. They're even spending ridiculous amounts of money. They're totally inappropriate on electric vehicles by trying to subsidize charging stations. So there's where our problem is. If you want to see more more, uh, more momentum moving toward consumers, unfortunately, either it's some organization that's going to represent them or the government needs to step in and start realizing, look, that they ought to be pushing for AVs as hard as they're pushing for EVs. Thanks, Cliff. We have another comment or question from Alexander Stefman. Alexander, are you with us? We're not hearing you yet, Alexander. Okay, apparently there's a there's an issue with the, with the microphone. We'll come back to you in a minute. Uh, Ken Pyle is also on. Ken, uh, you have a you have a question or two, I think. Yeah, two quick questions. Um, excellent presentation, everyone. Mark, for you real quick, I think it's probably a yes, no, but on the occupantless ruling, uh, does that mean that a company like Neuro is now, there is no exemption uh, as far as how many units they could build and deploy? So Neuro was, was the first and so far only uh, uh, AV uh, company to receive uh, a temporary exemption. Um, there's a couple pending right now. Um, but no, it doesn't mean that um, 
it, what it means is, is there is potentially now a path for compliance on those specific matters. So in the 200 series FMVSS, uh, that those, those issues there, path for compliance there. Um, so, I mean, there's still potential that they would need exemptions from other standards. Um, but for those particular ones, potentially that's the path forward there. They can now self potentially self-certify that they are com compliant um, for those specific issues. And that's sort of the issue. I mean, when you apply for an exemption, it's not, you know, I want my car generally exempt. It is, I am requesting this exemption from this or these specific federal motor vehicle safety standards. And then here is why my exempt vehicle would be just as safe as my vehicle without the exemption. So, you know, I think the, the easiest example is my, uh, my exempt vehicle that does not have rear view mirrors because it has this automated driving system is just as safe as uh, my vehicle if it had rear view mirrors and therefore, you know, I should be exempt. So it sounds like there'd be a potential then for them to get around that 5,000 per year limit, potentially. Unless, if, if, they, if, if they are for, so if they are not requesting exemptions from the 100, you know, they, they operated under, you know, they, they have to comply with numerous standards, federal motor vehicle safety standards. So if they are able to comply with everything else and self-certify that, yes, but they may still need to seek exemption from other standards that weren't addressed mm -hmm. in that rulemaking. But it does, it clears the path for self-certification to at least some of the federal motor vehicle safety standards that were in it, that were previously an issue that presented a, a, a challenge to certification. Thank you. Uh, and then if oh, oh go ahead, Alan. Go ahead, Ken. Uh, well, the question to you was, and so this you can maybe address them both. The distinction between a fleet manager and a ride sharing. I, I think I might have an idea on that, but if you could clarify. In terms of what of what I suggested, I, a fleet manager. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you said, uh, yeah, yeah, ride sharing and fleet model. Well, the, the part of the part of the I'm I'm looking at the at the um, um, addressable market for ride hailing. So if you look at the ride hailing market today, uh, it's basically a, a random individual at a random time at a random place deciding to go to another random place for which Uber, Lyft, and the others have been able to, to say, oh my goodness, yes, I have an entity, a human, who can easily fill that. Is, they're out of bed, uh, they can come to my house, and they can take me to Newark Airport. And all of a sudden, you know, they're, as long as they get out of, out of bed, you know, they can do it because the driver is capable and is licensed in the state of New Jersey, uh, to be able to provide that mobility uh, expectedly, safely, and legally, okay? And if he or she doesn't, then they're the ones that are responsible. Now put yourself into a situation in which now it's a computer that's going to do this, okay? 
that computer has to have the capability or has to have will have to demonstrate to the 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 state of new jersey i'll assume that in fact it can per, uh, do that mobility from my house to newark airport at that time in those conditions safely now the question is is you know who motor vehicle has been responsible for providing that certification it's given that individual the driver's license passed a test okay so now consider this neuro vehicle who you know now no longer needs a steering wheel okay of course not it doesn't need a steering wheel but still somebody's going to have to say that that vehicle can with its however it's going to be operate operate safely from wherever it's picking up its package to delivering its package and be able to to perform that mobility function safely and legally and somebody's going to have and, and that's not going to be federal motor vehicle i mean they're they're dealing with vehicles they're not dealing with the operation somebody's going to have to deal with the with certifying that operation at some particular point in time now, we heard from Russ Shield that with respect to certain functionalities that I'm going to be able to buy in my next Mercedes, it, Mercedes is going to go out there and say, hey, yeah, yo, wherever we let you turn it on and uh, you tell us where you're going and along whatever part, and be, you know, we're going to be able to take you all the way. And, and if anything happens or anything bad, we it's on us, I guess. Otherwise, I, otherwise... Otherwise, it's on me. Somebody, somebody has to be responsible. Somebody, and it's going to have to be definitive who that who's responsible for that, and where that responsibility gets either accepted or pushed to, is I think part of the key regulatory pieces that both at the federal and the state level we have yet to deal with. It's kind of interesting that we can get a, a, a driver's license and say, hey, we can, a 16 year old can drive anywhere in Jersey. Okay. Uh, is that really going to be, hey, somebody's, you know, gizmo can drive anywhere in New Jersey? R really? Down my street? Really? The, the public's going to come in and, and, and have something to say about that, I think. Mark? Well, you're you're right. Liability determination is a is a state level um, issue, and I think the longer term that is going to uh, be quite contentious between the the various parties involved, as it's always been. I mean, I think that's the important thing too, is that you know insurers, automakers, others have been going back and forth in the courts for generations now over this. And, you know, a lot of that is going to continue and, and product liability law can probably evolve uh, absent legislation. Um, but it's, you know, this is something that's going to play out over many years, decades uh, ahead. We're, we'll figure it out eventually, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's turn to each of our panelists for a quick Closing comment before we wrap things up here. Cliff, uh, it's been a few minutes since we've heard from you. I'll let you get started. All right. So I made the comment that you know this is a really a long run exercise in terms of our discussions and thinking. And it's, and it's not unreasonable uh, when you're thinking about an innovation and technological change to say, look, 
it's going to be 20, 30 years before we actually see this thing fully commercialized and safe. And hopefully commercial aviation should come to mind as, as an example. And you can imagine what the debate about airplanes would be today. And we didn't even have the plaintiff spar uh, in those days, thankfully. So that's what's going to be likely. The question is, how are we going to get from here to there? And I think the important thing to think about in this case, again, is the economics, but this time incentives from competition. The importance of autonomous vehicles, which differs from really virtually most other, any other really innovation that I can think of, it really is a global effort. Uh, this is not just one industry or one firm. Firms fail. Industries rarely fail when they're all committed to an innovation. And this will be the first one where it's industries throughout the world that are committed to this. So that's what we're gonna look, look for in competition across countries. That'll be the initial one. There was a comment about China and what impact it's gonna have. In the short one, nothing, because the government won't, won't care. But industry people will care and see what's going on in China and that will spur competition. But in the long run, I think that America will care. If other countries stop it, start adopting AVs and they're moving ahead, that will be a wake up call. And then that will filter through at local levels. States will compete, cities com will compete, and that's where ultimately we're gonna get the long run and widespread adoption. So continue to think in terms of the importance of competition as driving this industry, because it's gonna have a powerful effect. Thanks, Cliff. Let's, let's go to Mark next. Well, in keeping with the long run theme, um, I just wanna, I'll leave you with this anecdote that I think demonstrates uh, how challenging uh, federal auto safety regulation can be, how time consuming it can be, um, and probably what to expect for the regulation of automated driving systems. So um, within the last couple of decades, uh, automakers developed adaptive driving beam headlamps uh, where they would automatically adjust the beam uh, you know, there's, uh, uh, to, to provide the most illumination, automatically detecting oncoming vehicles to lower it. No more high beams and low beams, basically. Um, so it's been deployed in, it's been deployed in Europe and Japan then, uh, but there was a, a regulatory problem in the US. So in 2013, Toyota first petitioned NHTSA uh, to allow uh, it to sell adaptive driving beam headlamps. NHTSA said no, that they did not believe that the uh, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard, num number 108, if you're counting, uh, uh, offered sufficient latitude for them to deploy without a change in the regulations. So they began that process to changing the regulations. Um, so from Toyota's pet petition in 2013, uh, they did not get a final rule legalizing adaptive driving beam headlamps in the U.S. until earlier this year. So that's nine years um, it took to just get better, safer headlamps on the market in the U.S. Um, uh, and uh, about eight years is about is average now for for these rulemakings. So that's that's why I said in my presentation even when NHTSA can identify the standard or standards uh, that it would like to incorporate in regulation, actually going through the rulemaking process is going to take several years. Uh, so I'll leave you with that cheery note. 
Well, all three of you have been shedding a lot of light <laughs> without the need for regulation. Alan, last words. Oh, no, I, I, I uh, um, look, um, I've been involved in trying to bring automation to transportation in cities for more than 50 years. And, uh, and it's uh, the, oppor the opportunity for automation and providing mobility uh, simply because uh, of the productivity that you can get out there and the, the amount of mobility that you can provide at extremely low cost as, as Cliff uh, so well presented is, is just enormous. And, um, and this opportunity to do this with respect to uh, the driving function, uh, you know, most of the cost of, of public transportation is really for, for having a driver sit around and wait for a passenger. And, and again, I, I point out the elevator. The elevator is such a wonderful technology. Uh, when you look at, at what it does operationally, forget about the functional, you know, and what up and down. I mean, you look at, at its, its availability to sit around and wait for you and basically be on demand and just take you and have the flexibility to, to deal with surges and so on and so forth. It's marvelous. There's no wonder that we have that tall buildings and there is absolutely no reason why we can't do this horizontally with both people and goods. And it's an enormous opportunity. And it's not that in fact, we're gonna unemploy drivers. A lot of people will still like that be chauffeured around and chit chat with a driver and so on and be willing to pay for that, that's fine. The people that we're unemploying is us because we're the ones that are doing most of this functionality. We're, we're doing it for ourselves we wouldn't be able to enjoy the mobility and the lifestyle and the quality of life that we, if, that we have if we didn't do this thing for ourselves, if we didn't go to Home Depot and pick up the thing and bring it home, or we didn't take our kids to soccer practice and then come home and then go pick them up and then come home and just shuttling and then come home and do that. We're the ones that are doing it and we're doing it, doing it for ourselves. And now it's great that the auto industry has, has sold us and say, hey, we also enjoy it. And we think we're, you know, having some fun doing it and all this other stuff too. Great, but we're doing it for ourselves. But why not have a computer do it? And the person we unemploy is us. And, and unemployed, we just get enormous more benefit out of it. Uh, we get to relax, as Russ pointed out on that drive. We get to, you know, not necessarily be more productive and do more work. We don't want to do work. We want to, I don't know, play video games or whatever, enjoy ourselves. Let's, let's enjoy life, the heck with work and so on. And this is the enormous opportunity and the opportunity economically for productivity and so on is, as Cliff mentioned, it is enormous. With that, I think our elevator is at the ground floor. <laughs> a reminder that all of this will be available to watch again and refer back to. All of you who registered will be getting an email with the link, and we do encourage you to share it with colleagues. We want to thank Alan Kornhauser, Cliff Winston, Winston and Mark Scribner, and our sponsors, Reason Foundation, the Brookings Institution, and Princeton Autonomous Vehicle Engineering. And we truly appreciate all of you watching this live or streaming on later. Please reach out to our panelists as needed. We sincerely hope you have found this time well spent.
Thank you again for watching and thanks to the sponsor of Smart Driving Cars, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO and more info is available at MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS. The Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to safe and high quality mobility for all. Thank you once again for watching.